Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to some incredible people from around the world. These are leaders who are at the top end of their game. You know, I love talking to people who've got depth uh, of experience when it comes to leadership, but all of them are focusing on the same thing. They all demonstrate emotional intelligence in practice, in their leadership practice. And today's guest is no less. I am joined by Maria Kelly. Now, Maria is a fascinating individual. Uh, she spent over 20 years, if I've read this right, in Sotheby's. Now, I've never had anything to do with Sotheby's, but everybody knows what Sotheby's is. So I'm really fascinated to know what that was all about, what was the experience like, and her leadership uh, in, in that environment. Because she was actually, at one point, the global deputy manager uh, within Sotheby's for the, I think it was watches division, wasn't it, Maria? Yeah, jewelry and watches, luxury, yes. By the way, welcome to the program. Uh, it's great to see you here. <laughs> and uh, could you just tell me about this, uh, your whole experience in Sotheby's, because I'm fascinated. It started a bit by accident. I have no background in art <laughs> or in auction at all. And I actually didn't know much about Sotheby's before I joined. I was I was looking for a job. I needed to pay my bills. It happened that I bumped into a friend who who actually um, had her friend working for Sotheby's who just resigned. And she said, you should apply. And I said, well, I know nothing about, you know, auction. She said, well, if you don't try, it's no anyway. And I thought, that's really good advice. <laughs> yeah, some real wisdom there, right? <laughs> yeah, I walked over with my tree-line CV <laughs> and, <laughs> and thinking, well, it's going to end up in the bin. And uh, miraculously, I got pulled in immediately for an interview. And I think my biggest qualities was I was cheap and spoke fluent English. <laughs> At the time, it was it was in Geneva, Switzerland. And, um, and yeah, and then I stayed 22 years, uh, worked my way up from being an entry level administrator uh, in Geneva. I, my milestones were, I became general manager for Switzerland after a few years, I then was offered a division director role in New York. Wow. I took over a whole a whole division of all the uh, uh, loads of different departments, all the regional departments in New York, which was really, really fascinating and interesting. And then I was offered a global role. And that's when I moved to London, because uh, obviously managing Hong Kong and New York is easier when you're in the middle in the time zone. So yeah, very exciting. I learned a lot of incredible things. I saw amazing, amazing things I didn't even know existed. And art, jewelry, cars, wine, I mean, t name it, and we sold it. Uh, truffles, giant truffles, <laughs> <laughs> a piece of the Sputnik. So it was really, it was really fun. And uh, I think the, the best thing about it was the uh, incredible people working there. I, there were people from all backgrounds and um, 
so passionate. I think that was something that brought everybody together was the passion about what we were doing yeah. because it is a bit of a crazy world, the auction world. You're constantly preparing the next sale. It's up and down. So you have to pull it all together, do the sale and then on to the next. And it's a high pressure, quick delivery. Um, you have to have a certain mindset to work in that world and, uh, and, and be a little crazy, I think, <laughs> and, and love it. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it, was, it was an amazing ride. Really enjoyed it. I mean, I love the idea of this fast-paced world and you're trying to slow it down with focusing in, on your people. We're going to come into that in a short while. But first and foremost, I want to pick up on this. Uh, I mean, it must have been a terrible life. The fact that you've had to work in Switzerland, then move over to New York, maybe have a... <laughs> You know, do something in Hong Kong. And then, of course, you know, uh, having to live in uh, the central London, I guess, and work in central London. It must have been painful for you, Maria. How did you Terrible. cope? <laughs> Horrible. Oh, my God, it was so hard. <laughs> no, I, I've been, I've been, I'm really grateful for the opportunities I've had. I've, uh, I've been very lucky and uh, I got to travel all over the world, work in loads of different countries, meet amazing people. And uh, it was not something I was expecting. I was never someone who decided I'm going to have a career. I, I started because I needed a job and it just sort of happened, you know. As uh, you know, I think when you're really passionate about what you do and you work hard and you, you know, you're open to opportunities, uh, things pop up and come your way. So, I mean, I love the fact that um, you, you you went into Sotheby's with no qualifications for that business, uh, but it was a case of well, if you don't know, if you don't try, you don't know. And I love that philosophy. I mean, I adopt that philosophy in everything that I do now. I've kept it with me since. Uh, now, every any time someone would say, "Oh, I don't think," well, I said, "Well." If you don't do it, it's no anyway. So right now you don't have it. So it might as well, what do you have to lose, you know? As I get older in life, I, I, I adopt that philosophy more and more. I just throw my hat into the ring with things. I just say yes to opportunities. Uh, and some of them work, but some of them don't. But those that do work in a magical kind of way, right? Uh, and and then I end up doing things that I would never have thought I'd be doing, which is it's just fascinating. Um. Maria, I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, the people were amazing in Sotheby's and there must have been a culture within Sotheby's that, to, that, that resonated with you. What was that culture like? If you had to define the Sotheby's culture, what would it be for you? I was, I was in the management. Uh, I wasn't an expert. So we have a lot of specialists at Sotheby's who specialize mm. in different categories. So those people bring a certain, you know, level of uh, culture of... Um, passion and because what they're doing it's like it's like it's about the art it's about the object they're selling and it's it's they're really passionate about it yeah. and then there's lots of people around them such as me that support them and uh, and support departments like shipping and marketing and um proposals so there's there's a there's a real mix of types of people and i mean i guess it's similar to the police service where you would have police officers and then you would have those uh, people police staff we used to call them but those people who made the organization run so i guess you were on that corporate side where you were making the organization run and then you had those people who are bespoke specialists in specific areas uh, of the uh, of of the things that you sold, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and and high in color. Sometimes, you know, we, we'd have some prima donnas. <laughs> it was, it, but imagine. it was it was never dull. I think that's one thing uh, I enjoyed about Sotheby's is there was never one day that looked like another, and I was it was never boring. And sometimes it was really crazy. Uh, we'd 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 do things that 
you'd never thought was possible. So what, what was it like uh, having to manage staff across so many countries? I mean, you you worked at an international level for such a long time, and I guess it became second nature to you. But, um, you know, you're not, when, I, when I see people working internationally, it's not just a case of working with people who are remote from you, but it's also working with people who perhaps are coming from a different country and therefore have a different culture, and that is thrown into the mix as well. So how did you manage to run effective departments uh, across so many different countries at any one time? What was your secret around the people management side of it? I think the secret is to, first of all, not try and do it alone. <laughs> it's I had amazing people helping me, working with me. Um, I think and it was it was a learning curve. Uh, what you've just said about understanding that um, the people I'm working with in Hong Kong have a different work culture than the ones I'm working with in America, and being sensitive to that and understanding it was uh, it was it was it was a good learning and. Uh, and for me, it's, I think it's really communication. It goes down to communication. You have to really communicate with the people you work with. You have to be there for them and you have to listen. Yeah, because, you know, communication is a two-way thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we often talk about communication uh, uh, in terms of getting a message out there as leaders. But actually, it's also about listening to the feedback coming from the front lines, from the junior staff. And sometimes the ideas. Yeah, I think it's even more about listening. You said earlier on it's about surrounding yourself with the right people and knowing that you don't have the answers to everything, but somebody somebody else might. I guess you saw that coming an awful lot, particularly with some of the experts that worked alongside you. Um, so how did you manage to ensure that, A, your communication going out was the very best that it could be so that it, it settled and it landed well with your people? and built that foundation of trust that we all need. Um, but also, how did you ensure that that feedback was coming to you as well, so that you you encapsulated, you captured these these great ideas and thoughts that your your teams might be having across the world? I think it's about, as you said, at the, at the beginning, you know, when you come in as a new leader, it's about building those foundations straight away. I took the time to meet any new person working with me, whether they were reporting to me directly or not. I would sit down with every one of them and spend 30 minutes to an hour to get to know them, to, you know, get to know them, let them know, you know, get to know me, um, find out what their challenges were, how I could help them, what they think could have been improved in their work or you know, if they, they had ideas and things they would like to share. And I found that that's something that goes really a long way in building a strong foundation because the number of people that would say to me, this is the first time somebody's done this for me and has asked me my opinion mm. and has taken the time to listen. And then it's important to follow up, right? If they've said something to you that they care about, even if you can't, you know, if you can't do what they want you to do, but at least go back, say, listen, I've looked into it. Unfortunately, we can't do it for this and this, but we're going to try and figure something else out. And I think that's the starting point where you have to go. It's really take. And I traveled a lot at the beginning to meet everybody individually, take the time. And then it's keeping that conversation going. I, mm. I strongly, strongly believe in one in weekly meetings with your, your reports. And that's something I would get resistance from the people directly because they were like, I don't have time or from the managers when I told them you should do it with your teams, because again, I don't have time. And what's the point? We're sitting in the same room. They can come and speak to me. But in the long run, they all, all agreed in the end that it was beneficial and it was important and gave them that opportunity to share, you know, whatever ideas or challenges they had. 
couple of things there for me. I mean, uh, this issue around having these month, uh, these weekly meetings or whatever time frame you put to those meetings, I think is very, very important because uh, I've heard I've heard that same argument. Oh well, I sit in the same room, always oh, see each other every day. So what's the point in having a meeting? For me, the the the, the point in having these meetings, I guess, Maria, in this way, you 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 perhaps were coming from, is that. These meetings are there to allow you that opportunity to have a structured conversation that's focused in on 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 a potential on on a specific issue. Whereas, when you're seeing people day to day, things can get lost in the messaging, can't they? And and one conversation tends to blur into another conversation, so nothing ever really gets true focus. So I think that was one of the reasons why meetings were important for me. But another thing that you just said, which really resonated with me, was when people have said to you, this is the first time that somebody's actually taken time out to listen. And and I've heard that. I've had that said to me many a time. Uh, and I think when somebody says that to you, A, it makes you feel good because it means that you're doing something worthwhile and that you're impacting uh, in the right way with these people. But also it makes me feel sad because it means that nobody else has listened to this person for goodness knows how many years and how undervalued have, has that individual felt and, and, and more importantly how how well have they worked in that environment you know I always think that you know when people are people are, are feeling valued and appreciated heard and seen that's when they work at their best but unfortunately most organizations and now you are involved in leadership development most organizations will say well if you teach us these soft skills these so-called soft skills how can you how can you ensure and demonstrate that that will lead to tangible improved performance and it's that it's that people just organizations are looking for measures linear measures far too much driven by KPIs driven by objectives bottom lines and shareholder prioritization and they, they they forget something much deeper than that yeah absolutely i mean i had the perfect example um when i was taking a new um, new people on and uh, the previous leader that i was replacing and my boss actually said to me this person um not been performing you should get rid of them and i said well why didn't you deal with it if it was a problem? <laughs> like, Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for letting me deal with the, the issue. They were like, oh, you, you'll deal with it fine. So I said, well, it's still my call, right? This is my report. I want to have time to evaluate this person and figure out what, you know, what the issues might be. And they were like, yeah, yeah, of course, it's your call, but you're going to see. There's nothing we can do with them anymore. I sat down with this person, had a conversation, had a, gave some feedback on, you know, on how they were being perceived. We worked out together, um, you know, a plan to help them get to where they were. And their feedback to me was like, well, nobody's, you know, being paying attention to me or supporting me. And like, what's my incentive to do better seeing as Absolutely. anyway, whether I do a lot of work or not, the, you know, I don't get a bonus. I don't get this. I don't get that. I don't feel recognized. So um, we worked together with this person. The following year, this person brought in like a record collection sale. Uh, that that made millions for the company. Wow. And that was just for me the proof. I didn't go back and say, see, I told you, but I they knew I was thinking it. But but it was the perfect example of writing somebody off. Nobody sat down with this person, had a conversation. Nobody tried to figure out why this person who had been a good performer was not anymore performing. And um, And that happens so often. And we lose good people because 
they're not being treated correctly because they're just, you know, people forget everything they've done before and think, well, suddenly they've become, I don't know, irrelevant or disengaged. Well, if they're disengaged, you're probably the company's fault. Somebody's done something wrong. There's a great model, Maria, and I forget the name of the model that shows that, um, and it's based upon morale and energy. So you have these two scalars of, um, uh, of morale and energy. So if somebody's at the low end of morale, for a whole host of reasons, it could be 101 reasons why somebody's low in morale, but their energy levels are still high, then they are going to exhibit some tendencies like anger, frustration, defensiveness, um, um, being overly vocal, you know, those kind of characteristics which which might annoy a lot of people. And, and as a consequence, a lot of leaders will say, well, I'm writing that individual off. What we don't do and what we should do is maybe look to see, okay, hang on a minute. Has this individual always been like that? Because if this individual hasn't always been like that, then what is the root cause that's creating this behavior behavior change? And it could be anything, couldn't it? It could be that they're under some financial stress. It could be that they're going through a divorce. It could be that they've lost a loved one. Or it could be that they feel undervalued. Or it could be that somebody's, I don't know, Somebody's taking credit for a piece of work that they've done or a boss hasn't recognised their efforts. And I think we need to hold a mirror up sometimes as leaders and say, hey, hang on a minute, do I play a part in why this person's behaving in this way? And is there a way of overcoming that? Could I do what exactly what you did, Maria? You changed it around. You changed the way that you interacted with this individual. You gave them responsibility and trust, increased responsibility and trust, rather than actually getting rid of them, which is what your 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 predecessor had suggested. And you 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 turned this rough stone into a golden diamond. You know, you brought in millions of pounds worth of uh, profit for the organisation. And it's that, isn't it? It's just picking up on these symptoms sometimes, I find. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'd love to see that model if you want to share it with me after the podcast because I don't know it, but I find it really interesting. I use it all the time, yeah. but, you know, you use so many models and you forget the, the names of these models because there's another one where it talks about if your energy is low and your morale is low, that is when you're going to exhibit things like, you know, you, you suddenly um, start... Uh, going very silent, very quiet, your workload is suffering, uh, you might be going off sick an awful lot and uh, you're not, not showing up, you're not not, not uh, uh, interacting in the group activities uh, and that is when you're burning out. So you've burnt out to such an extent that you are now getting into this very depressed kind of mindset. But again, we write people off like that. We, we put them through processes. We'll put them through a process of managing abstractions, managing attendance. We'll put them through a process of managing performance. So we put them through these processes, these very clinical processes. It used to annoy me as a leader where, you know, I'd maybe got somebody who'd been off sick for six months uh, because they've got cancer. You know, these, this was, these were good, hardworking individuals and they've got cancer. And at six months, HR would turn around and say, well, we need to put them on half pay now. I'd be like, what? Why would you do that? You know, um, 
and, and it's this, sometimes we get so clinical and we forget the humanity side element to it all. And from me, leadership, if there's one thing, it has to be about humanity. No, great. It's about the people. And your business doesn't work without the people. And that's what makes it great. That's why your clients come to you. It's because they're being treated in a certain way by your people. That's why That's why you're successful in what you do. It's because of the people doing it. It's not because of the systems and processes or the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. You're so right. I mean, Sotheby's had to be so many, so so client orientated. I'm yes, guessing, absolutely. So building relationships with your clients again is the same thing. It's about building relationships based on trust. Otherwise, why would be why would be people be spending the? And we're talking about millions of pounds with Sotheby's. Why would people spend millions of pounds with any organisation if there's not an element of trust? So again, it's you know, emotional intelligence for me is about relationship building wherever you are yeah. and building relationships with your clients is so so critical mm. what would be for you what are the best relationship building tools what is it that you do i mean you're probably having to think now oh i do this so naturally <laughs> i'm putting you on the spot um, so what are the key things you think you do um without getting too analytical really i think i'm 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 always open to experimenting new things. I've, for me, building relationships was always about you need to make the effort. Basically, nobody's going to do it for you. So you need to consciously make the effort to build those relationships. And I was lucky being based in Geneva. I think that was something that gave me a great um, a great platform because we had uh, the biggest uh, jewelry sales in the world. And so when we had our sales, people from all over the organization would fly in, including the top management of the company. So that wouldn't happen in lots of other little locations. And so Geneva was a big platform and because it was also a big um, financial um, part of our business. So we'd have, I'd have a lot of exposure there and opportunities to actually connect mm -hmm. with people. And what was great is it was around, it wasn't just around meetings uh, as we would do. I, I find that the best relationships are built around, you know, going to the pub for a drink or going out for lunch or meeting during or working together on a project that's a bit, you know, a bit stressful. And, and auctions were all of that. Auctions were like, we'd be working long hours from early in the morning till 11 at night, set, preparing the auctions, setting up the exhibitions, uh, organizing everything. Then we'd all go out for a drink or something to eat, or we'd have the opportunity to, to mingle with people in the senior management team that we would not have access to otherwise. And that gave me a great opportunity to build those relationships with these people. And I took it and I took advantage of it. And, and, um, and I, whenever I would visit New York or London, I would make sure that I'd go and see these people so that I'd build those relationships with. So I'd send them a message. I say, Hey, I'm going to be in town for a meeting. I'd love to pop by and say hi. I'd always bring Swiss chocolates <laughs> and, uh, and that always worked. And, uh, but it was, and it, and it was not, it was not all calculated, but it was, it was for me, it was, a, it was important to build relationships with these people. And it wasn't so much about my career, but I, I understood very quickly that if you want to get anything done, you need to have relationships. And like, absolutely. Oh my God. The yes. IT guys were my best friends because I understood very quickly that those are the guys you need to have, in, you know, on your side. <laughs> and I could call them and say, oh my God, I have this terrible problem. And they drop everything for me. And, and that's, that's when I understood, okay, this is how it works. You know, you, and then they could haul me for anything too. And it, so it's, it's, it's also reciprocity. It's not just about taking advantage. It's about 
I'm here for you. You're here for me. We help each other. We both win. I mean, that's, that's, it's about, a, you know, winning together and building something together. Absolutely. You know, the, the, and the world revolves around relationship building for me. The, yeah. If you, if you want anything done in the world, you get it done far better and far quicker if you've got a decent relationship with whoever it is that you, you want that done by. And, you know, you made me smile by saying that your IT guys were your best friends. Mine were too. Um, <laughs> For me, it was always, uh, I had three elements. I had the IT people, I had the HR people because HR can be so process driven. Exactly. And I needed to cut through the processes to get to the human element of it all. Uh, and the third one for me was the, the cleaners. Yeah. Uh, because I used to come in an hour early every morning just so I could have a cup of tea with a cleaner. Uh, and the cleaners know everything. They know what's going on. They are amazing. They're, they're like my, they became like my informants, really. You know? <laughs> See, I'm <laughs> so right. <laughs> you are so right that relationships sit at the very, very heart of everything that we do. They really do. And the world revolves around relationships. So, so we've all to get good at it. Uh, now, talking about you know, relationship building, um, you've now changed. You've gone away from Sotheby's. I think, did you spend 20, 22 years, something like that? It went by really quickly. <laughs> it does, though, yeah, doesn't it? Do. Does. Time flies when you're enjoying does, yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, but um, you, you are quite a resilient person. You set yourself some big, big targets, don't you? Uh, since you left Sotheby's, uh, you've you've done some great work. You've worked out at food banks, uh, helping community, which you know I take my hat off to you for. Um, uh, throughout the Corona period, the the first lockdown, twenty twenty of coronavirus, you you weren't you weren't satisfied with just having to be locked into your house just like anybody else. As soon as you had the opportunity, you actually decided that you were going to move countries, not move houses, but move countries. Uh, and then, of course, you have set up your own company doing leadership development. Do you want to just tell me about the, the house move to start off with? I mean, a crazy time to do it, but you've achieved it. You're very happy. <laughs> you're settled. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that journey. Yes. Now, we decided in uh, January 2020 that we wanted to, we'd been four years in London. Previously, we'd been mm -hmm. four years in New York. And after we, we were thinking, okay, what's... What's the next step? London was never going to be the end, end game for us. Uh, we knew that. and um, But we didn't know where we wanted to go. So we sat down, made a list of all the things that were important to us, like uh, where we live, like the weather, being close to water, having an international airport, dog yeah. friendly because we have a dog. Uh, so an, enough outside space, greenery, um, a bunch of like you know, health system, a lot of things that were important to us. And Barcelona just ticked all the boxes. Right. <laughs> so we looked into it and it turned out that um, it was feasible with our passports to move here. We have Swiss passports. And um, Brexit was also one of the reasons why we wanted to leave London, obviously. Um, and so, so we thought, okay, well, let's do this. We're moving to Barcelona. You know, what do we have to lose? <laughs> And we get to learn a new language because we didn't speak a word of Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided on that. And then like two months later, uh, the world closed down <laughs> and we thought, oh, my God. And we had our lease, our apartment lease uh, in central London, which was very expensive, which was due to be renewed in, in June. And we did obviously wanted to leave. Uh, so we, we, 
we'd given the our notice for our apartment. And then we weren't even sure we were going to be able to leave because the first lockdown came in and then things were really bad in Italy and then they started getting really bad in Spain and Spain locked down completely. And we decided to move in June and Spain was still on lockdown and there was no way we could go to Spain. So we decided to put everything in a container, um, fly back to Switzerland, stayed with some friends because we didn't want to infect our family members. Our parents were both a um, certain age and you know, um, vulnerable. Mm. So we have very good friends who put us up for four months. And, uh, and while we were there, everybody was trying to convince us to not move to Spain. We were our friends, our family, they were looking for apartments for us. They were telling us, why don't you stay in Switzerland? It's safer. Um, and we thought, no, you know what? We want to do this. If we don't do this now, we're never going to do it. If we settle now in Switzerland, it's not going to happen. So we resisted. And as soon as, as Spain opened up again, uh, which was the beginning of September, we came over, luckily found very quickly an apartment and were able to get our containers out of London like a week before it shut down again and get, get, our, get our, our apartment furnished. So it was a bit of an adventure, but no regrets. I mean, we're so happy we actually did. And of course, now you have a leadership development company, which I guess you're running from, from Spain. Yes. Uh, and are you working predominantly with organizations in Spain? Do you work with individuals? How does it work? Uh, I've been working with my network in the UK and US principally. Mm -hmm. uh, but I am now, uh, this year I've started, well, first year we couldn't go out. You know, everything was closed. Um, everybody was wearing the mask outside as well here. So we kept the mask till... I want to say like till, was it this year? Beginning of this year, uh, we were wearing the mask outside. So um, so that made it really difficult to create relationships, build relationships with people. And uh, also when we moved here, we wanted to learn Spanish because we didn't speak Spanish. So we decided that we would not, um, not try and meet expats because we wanted to learn Spanish. So we, we had a teacher and we did an hour day Spanish online with this teacher and uh, avoided any English or French speaking people to make sure that we didn't, you know, get tempted <laughs> to not use our Spanish. So, so we did that for a year. And so that's why also it took us a bit longer to start, you know, meeting people. Uh, but this year we've started, I've started making lots of connections. I also joined Toastmasters uh, because I wanted to improve my public speaking, but also uh, to meet people. And that's been, that's been great. I have to say it's, uh, it's been a great way to connect and meet a lot of people locally. I love that. And I love how everything that you've done has been focused in around relationships, networks, um, trust building, uh, but uh, the emotional resilience that you've got as well to power through, uh, despite what other people might be saying or despite what the circumstances have, have, have pushed you into, you've still powered through. And I'm so pleased that you got to the other side of it. I cannot wait to see what the future holds for you, Maria. I think it's going to hold some very, very... Uh, amazing things to be quite honest and uh, we'll no doubt be continuing our conversations offline as well but thanks very much for being on the program today it's been an absolute pleasure no, thanks a lot for having me it's been fun thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content and of course connect with me on linkedin take care have a great day